Please remain standing for my sermon. <laughs> oh, sorry. That probably isn't going to work, is it? We should try that sometime. <clears throat> Paul, very well done. Thank you for reading. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it would be an interesting test. How long could you make it? You know, it's like, it's like I can play, you know, walk four hours playing golf, but 15 minutes in the mall, I need a bench. Uh, so I have a feeling about 10 minutes into the sermon, it'd be dropping like flies, you know. They were, uh, well, good morning. Welcome. It's uh, great to have you here with us this, uh, on this day. How are the New Year's resolutions going? Uh, okay, so how many here made New, Re- New Year's resolutions and willing to admit it? All right, so I think there's probably more of you than that, but uh, so how are they going? I mean, how, how's it uh, coming, coming through? You know, you're a month into it now, or it's still on track, seem to be going okay. I read an interesting article this week that uh, was talking about New Year's resolutions. There was a study done in December, the month of December, that uh, it's about, it was conducted with 2,000 people, so I don't know how broad it is, how narrow, but anyway, 2,000, asking them of their goals for 2013. Um, and there were some interesting results. As a matter of fact, I guess this happens regularly, and they were surprised. There was a new number one at the top of the list, and number one was to read more books. Surprised? I know I was surprised as I read it. Uh, here's actually the top five. Read more books is number one. Save more money, number two. Uh, always on the list, by the way. Number three, lose weight. Uh, four, redecorate. I don't know what, maybe your car. Probably the house, though. Number five, take better photos. So there's a whole list of them there. You can go. It's interesting if you look at all the ones that came out. Number 16, I believe it was, was to spend less time on Facebook. Uh, But number 28 was to learn to use Twitter. So, you know, I don't know if they canceled themselves out. It was really funny. Number 13, uh, (laughs) this is to, to less TV time. But literally, number 14 was, learn to connect my computer to the TV. (laughs) I don't know what that tells us, but I thought it was pretty funny, so I wanted to know. Seriously, I'm all for New Year's resolutions, and I think that it is a good thing for us to set personal goals to better ourselves. However, I want to begin the message by just suggesting a a fear that I have that maybe we've taken oftentimes a New Year's resolution approach to the way we view our faith. And as a result, we may be missing the entire point of what it means to follow Christ. Okay, I know it's rather bold of me right off the bat to say to you that you may be missing the point of the Christian life. So let me just take a moment to explain. Although I believe that the Christian life does make me a better person, makes us better people, and there are are many benefits and rewards that come with following Christ for which I am deeply thankful And although this is true, the Christian life, though, is not about how I can be better or the benefits that I can gain in the process of living this life of faith. Does that make sense? The Christian life is not about me. It's not about us. And this morning, we're going to take a closer look at the sixth chapter of the books of Exodus. And we will see that God wants us to be very clear that He is to be the goal 
our highest good, our greatest delight. It's not what God promises, promises us, what he saves us from, what he takes us to. God is to be the goal. Now, just to be very clear, this doesn't mean that we aren't to desire the benefits that come with our faith or to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness so that we can be better people. But the goal mustn't be what we can become or what we can get from him. The goal is him. So if you're not already there, turn with me to the sixth chapter of the book of Exodus. If you have your Bible there with you, I want you to follow along with this. As we finished last Sunday... You may remember um, in the story of Joseph, we finished literally with 70 Israelites flourishing in the land of Egypt because Joseph had saved them and the entire nation of Egypt from a horrible famine. But as we open the book of Exodus this morning, 400 years have passed. I know it only took us about a week to read it, but let's Get that. 400 years have passed. And right off the bat, the book of Exodus tells us in chapter 1, verse 8, it tells us that there arose a new king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, this is not good news for the Israelites. You know, you just kind of have to wonder if for many years that they had found favor as a people, the Israelites, because of their connection to Joseph, the one who saved Egypt through the famine. But that no longer carries any weight. A new king has come, and the Egyptians decide to make and and do enslave the people of Israel. I wonder if during this time, as the Israelites worked in the hot sun, if there was ever a time where they began to wonder, you know, way down the road, so 300 years later, where Abraham and Joseph, are those just stories that their ancestors made up? Did they sort of become urban legends? And people begin to question if these promises were really true, if they just were some fabrication. But most of us know the story of their rescue. The story of the rescue of God's people is probably something you're familiar with, whether you're brand new here or you've been in church from the beginning of your life. If you're in your 20s or maybe you have kids in your 20s, you can maybe even sing songs about the Exodus, songs from the, mo- the famous movie, The Prince of Egypt. This story, the story of the deliverance of God's people, the story of the Exodus, the departure, their departure from slavery is the model for God's rescue that we will see all through the Old Testament. This story was to the Israelites a little bit like A cross is to us as followers of Christ. It is literally the pinnacle of their faith. Now, if you're reading along with us in our daily Bible reading uh, in open here, uh, you may know that this week we were introduced in our reading to a baby boy floating in a river. A baby who will one day turn into Charlton Heston. Now, I know you were already thinking that, you know, when you, when you read it. Uh, and for those of you that don't know who Charleston Heston is, I'm sorry to make you feel out of place. Uh, 
He played Moses, by the way, in the movie, The Ten Commandments. Uh, <laughs> the Bible uses another name, though. It uses, I, you just to be amazed at the things that go through my head. And uh, <laughs> be thankful I don't say them up here. I just want you to know that. The Bible doesn't use Charlton Heston's name. It uses Moses. Um, so let's read together this morning as we dive into the story in the sixth chapter of the book of Exodus, beginning in verse 1. I want us to read these first nine verses. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord... I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Now let's look at these nine verses and attempt to answer three questions. The first question is, who is God? And, and by the way, I was struck by the fact that we, during our uh, time of singing, we sung a line that said, I wrote it down, no praise can define you. And yet I'm going to try to give a sermon that helps us define it. it, just, it it's, I'm not going to do it justice, I just want you to know, but we're going to try to answer this question. What do these nine verses teach us about who is God, what does deliverance look like, and why does it matter? In the story of Abraham we looked at just a couple of weeks ago, you may remember, um, in Genesis 17, we were introduced to God as God Almighty. Do you remember that phrase, God Almighty? It's used here again in Exodus 6, which is the Hebrew word you may have heard of, El Shaddai. But here, in his conversation with Moses, God wants to tell him, Moses, more about who he is. So you see, he's hoping to bolster Moses' confidence as he leads God's people. And so in verses 2 and 3, he says, and I paraphrase, now you may know me as God Almighty, but there's more to who I am. I am the Lord. Now, when we read this, we might scratch our head and just sort of say, uh, huh? I mean, that's pretty basic, isn't it? I mean, couldn't he have come up with something a little bit more descriptive than Lord? See, our familiarity with this word, Lord, and its common use throughout the rest of Scripture makes it seem as if God really hasn't revealed very much. But there's a lot more going on here. Turn back with me. If you have your Bible there, turn back to Exodus 3. We heard Paul read just a moment ago from Exodus 3. 
And this is a moment, by the way, where we find Moses talking, or God speaking to Moses through a burning bush. God tells Moses that as he goes to speak to Pharaoh and to to speak to the people of Israel as well, that he's going to be with them, that he can give them strength. Look at verse 13. Moses asked God or the bush, I don't know which, how you want to think about that, what seems to be a pretty logical question. Why me? I mean, how am I going to have any credibility to speak to this? I'm likely to get tortured, by the way, why me? And God answers his question with these words. He said, if, Moses said, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Okay. Well, that clears it up, doesn't it? I am who I am. Have you ever wondered if the creators of Popeye had this phrase in mind (laughs) when they came up with Popeye's signature statement? So, well, obviously I did, and I actually wrote it down, and some of you must have as well. Uh, But sorry, I'm just wondering. So, back to the story here in Exodus. Either... I am who I am. I am. Tell them I am sent me. Either God needs uh, some help finishing his sentences, or maybe there's something here that we might ought to pay attention to, something unique that's going on. And I think it's the latter. God is introducing his people, and specifically Moses here, to a more complete understanding of who he is. And this is the Hebrew word that is also probably familiar to us. It's the Hebrew word of Yahweh. It's spelled for us with four consonants, Y-H-W-H, which simply means I am. And this is God's personal name. So when we come to Exodus 6 here, God reveals more to Moses and says, Remember the same, I'm the same God that appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, God Almighty. But I didn't tell them my name. My name is Yahweh. I am. Now, it's likely that your Bible is, this word Yahweh is spelled out Lord in all caps or lower caps. Uh, which is the way most Bibles, by the way, write out every occurrence of the word Yahweh. Now, why is this significant? In a world that worshipped, and at a time that worshipped, in a land that worshipped many gods, the response of I am was amazingly clarifying. God is saying, I am the only God. I am God alone. It's interesting, you look in the New Testament, John records Jesus using a similar phrase. Um, He's teaching in the temple, 
It's found in John chapter 8, verse 58. You might go and look at it this week. It's an interesting encounter. The Jewish, Jewish leaders are becoming increasingly frustrated with him as he's teaching. And Jesus is speaking of Abraham as if he knew him personally, which I guess he did. And, and they're bothered by this, and they have a little phrase that they use, which is interesting. It says, they say to him, you're not even 50 years old which I don't know if that's the marker where you, there's a possibility you might know Abraham once you go after 50. I think I have a chance now, but you're not even 50 years old. You, you don't know Abraham. And Jesus responds to him and, he, and them, and I just love this, seeing the look on his face. He said this, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Does Jesus need some grammar help? Or is he making it very obvious for them and for us of who he is? Just as God wanted to make it very clear to Moses who he was. I am. But what about our deliverance? If God is, what does it mean to be rescued by him? Well, this rescue comes out beautifully in the next three verses, verses 6, 7, and 8. If you have your Bibles, in, 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 we're back in Exodus 6, by the way. Look at the remarkable way God promises, God's promise of his rescue is communicated. There are seven I will statements. If you want to underline these, every time he says I will, there are seven I will statements that are bookended by two I am statements. It's almost as if he begins this way. Uh, Let me tell you who I am so that you can know what I'm about to tell you, you can trust because this is who I am. And then he tells them those promises and then he says, oh, those things that I just told you, you can trust me because this is who I am. We can break those seven statements down into three categories. I think it's helpful for us just to process just a bit. There are three, the first three I will statements are what we are delivered from or what the people are delivered from. The last two I will statements are what they're delivered to. And right smack in the middle are two I will statements of what they are delivered for. Let's look at those three categories. First, what are they delivered from? Now, this may be the easiest category for us to get our hands around or our mind around because when we think of deliverance, This is often the only category that we think of. We are rescued from something or from someone. And this is certainly true in this story as well. Here are the three promises. If you have it there, look at verse 6. It says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. Every time God rescues, he rescues us from. Now, you might know this story, and we'll be reading more about it in our daily reading in the next couple of weeks. But let me just go ahead and say, this rescue story is simply amazing. God will send plagues on Egypt to convince them to let his people go. And although there is a tragic sadness to this story, the power of God on display 
is truly awesome in the truest sense of the word. Now, as you read about the plagues this week, let me just encourage you, you might be tempted to think that God is cruel, but let's not miss that there's much more going on here and much more of intention to these plagues. For you see, at that time, each plague addressed some area of life that was thought to be controlled or protected by a god of Egypt. And so in each plague, it's as if God is saying, I am, I am, I am. And in his painful display of power, he is known repeatedly as I am. Now, the parallels of this story, if you're not seeing it, to our story as followers of Jesus are really hard to miss. We, too, were once enslaved, enslaved to sin. We, too, face an oppressor, an oppressor who is even greater and crueler than the Pharaoh. We, too, were rescued from sin and death and hell. But unfortunately, many Christians have only a one-dimensional understanding of their rescue. We often only see our deliverance through the lens of what we have been rescued from. And as a result, we end up only thankful that we're not going to hell. But let's be clear. Avoiding hell is not the goal of the Christian life. Just like getting out of Egypt was not the goal of God's deliverance. God's promises found in Exodus 6 can help us broaden our understanding of our deliverance, of our rescue. God wants not only something from, to deliver us from something, he wants to deliver us to something. We aren't just rescued from hell, we are rescued to a new life. Skip down to verse 8. Let's look at two more of these statements. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I will give to it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Now, we may know the amazing story of God's people, but it's still remarkable that they walk across the Red Sea on dry land, and they enter into this promised land. God took his people, rescued them, and delivered them to a new life. Similarly, when we experience salvation from something, God always has something that he's delivering us to, to a new being, to a new identity, to a new work, to a new purpose, to a life of fruitfulness and a life that's flourishing. The deliverance of God's people recorded for us in Exodus shows us that true rescue is not just what we're saved from, but also what we are saved to. But here's the deal. Even the life that we're saved to should not be our focus. Even heaven, for which I am truly thankful and eagerly anticipate, is not the goal. 
And God does not want Moses or us to miss this foundational truth that God is the goal of our deliverance. Look at verse 7, positioned right in the center of from and to. God says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So why do we exist? Why does God rescue us? For him, that we might be his and that he might be ours. So it begs the question, what does God want for you? Himself. And he offers himself freely to us. We serve a God who longs to be known and who should be the focus of our life. Now, through the entire story of this deliverance, we will see God repeatedly revealing himself. In chapter 7, verse 5, it says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. In 7.16, it says, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. I will strike the water in the Nile. In 8.10, it says, So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. In 8.22, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. In 9.14, I will send all my plagues on you, Pharaoh, so that you may know that there is none like me on all the earth. And in 9.16, answering the question of why Pharaoh is even king, God says, for this purpose I've raised you up, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In 9.22, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. In 10.2, I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians that you may know that I am the Lord. In 11.7, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. In 14.4, I will get glory over Pharaoh and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And in 14.18, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh and his horsemen. Do you see a theme, a pattern here? Salvation from something and salvation to something is just not enough. It's not enough to take us from what is away from what is bad and, get, and send us to what is good. What we need most, the thing that we were created for in the garden, is God himself. And we will be miserable without him. This is the heart of the Christian life. Christ made a way for us once to once again have intimacy with God. And until that relationship is restored, there is no way we can experience life as it was meant to be. God wants to, us to know him because we will never be satisfied without him. But unfortunately, I often define the goal of the Christian life by what I can get from it. I can now have peace. I can now be more loving, forgiving. I can now have a purpose in life. I can see how my story fits into the bigger story and sort of make sense of my life. And yes, how I can make sense of death and have a confident hope in eternal life. And I wish I didn't have to admit that it's rare for me to take time to reflect on the truth that God is our goal, not on how it improves my life. And I'm guessing that I'm not alone. 
In his book, God is the Gospel, John Piper digs at this common truth among Christians by asking this haunting question. He says, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? I must admit, as I read those words, um, I, what God brought to my mind is the number of times that I've had conversations with people talking about how I hope that there are golf courses in heaven. And yet, I've never thought once about Jesus being in my foursome and the possibility of playing golf with him. That's a moment where you certainly want a handicap system, by the way. If we can respond yes to this question, which I'm sad to admit is too often true in my life, then I think we have the wrong goal. We are pursuing selfish gain and not God. And if we're pursuing anything other than Christ, we can easily begin to trust in those things and not in God. In other words, And John Piper makes this very clear, that if we are okay without a heaven, or we are okay with a heaven without God, then we won't be there. We were created for God, we have been saved for God, and without God, we will never experience the life that he intended, here or in the life to come. Which leads to the final question of the morning, why does this matter? Well, if God is our goal, It should change everything. It ought to change our goals, our expectations, our lifestyles. We should regularly search our hearts and ask, are we simply wanting stuff from God or are we wanting Him? If you're reading along, this week we read that Pharaoh, and you know the story, Pharaoh saw more of God, more of Yahweh, than any of us could ever dream. And yet, at the end of the story, Pharaoh is a slave. A slave to his own hateful passions. And it ultimately costs him his life. You see, Pharaoh teaches us an unfortunate truth that for some of you here this morning, it doesn't really matter how much proof you're given. God is the last thing that you want. And if he's the last thing you want, he's the last thing you'll get. So let me conclude this morning with just two suggestions for each of us as we seek together to make God our goal. First, let's do some soul searching. Let's search our hearts. Let me just ask why you're here this morning. Why did you come? Why are you seeking to follow Christ? If our answer is more about what we can get from God than the fact that we could actually get God, we need to soberly make some adjustments, which leads to the second suggestion. Let's take the time to adjust our goals and adjust our focus. 
when we lose our focus and begin to put energy on what we can get out of it, we're headed down the path of idolatry, which ultimately ends in bondage and slavery. This is why the Hebrews writer so strongly encouraged us to keep the goal, our goal in focus. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We are to fix our eyes on God. We are to do our work to please God. We are to read and study so that we can know God. We should love hanging out with people who have God as their goal. We are to learn God's ways and live accordingly. We are to regularly ask the question, what would Jesus do in this moment if he were me? Now, no one does this perfectly, by the way. But could it be time for some assessment and some adjustments to your goals? God revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush. He revealed himself to the people through the plagues and the miracles as Yahweh. He reveals himself to us as Jesus, which simply means Yahweh saves. And the good news of the gospel is that God just doesn't hear our cry and remember our promises. He came and lived and died and rose again to deliver us from death and to a new life that begins now, a life that is all for him. Let's pray together. In a few minutes, we're going to gather around the Lord's table and share in communion. But before we do, let's just take a few moments to pray silently together. Let me guide us. Let me just ask, what has God saved you from? Take a moment to express a heart of thankfulness to God. What has God saved you to? How has he given you new life? Think about tangible examples of God's blessings around you and express a heart of thankfulness to him. What has God saved you for? Is God your goal? Or are you just wanting stuff from Him? I encourage you to repent, seek His forgiveness, turn to Him.